I titled this uh, talk, Dangers Within the Evangelical Church. Dangers Within the Evangelical Church. Uh, first thing we have to do is define what we mean by evangelical, okay? And that's tough because even the Evangelical Theological Society is going to be holding a conference, uh, I think a year from now, a year from this November, and they're asking for theologians to present papers to define what they think evangelical means. And the, the reason why it's got to be defined is because there's so many quote-unquote evangelical theologians who are redefining what traditional Christian beliefs uh, are. So uh, whatever the case, I think, uh, I think it's pretty clear that evangelical, uh, it comes from the, the Greek word euangelion, uh, 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 and it basically means good news, okay? So basically, evangelical uh, has in modern times meant uh, those Christians who emphasize the proclaiming of the gospel message, uh, salvation through Jesus, as it has been historically understood for you know, the past 2,000 years. So basically, those who hold to salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Okay, and continue to proclaim that. Um, that is what an evangelical is. Okay, now the problem is that within the evangelical church, um, there are some movements uh, that are moving away from what has been historically understood as an evangelical. In other words, the gospel message is being um, corrupted either directly or indirectly. And sometimes the biggest threats come when it's being corrupted indirectly. Because the response you'll, you'll often hear, you know, somebody will say, now wait a minute, um, that's not what the Christian church has taught for 2,000 years and uh, I sense something dangerous here, and, and then someone, another Christian will say, yeah, but it doesn't touch on any of the essentials of the faith. Therefore, you know, they've got the freedom to hold that view and to call themselves evangelicals. And then what happens is that particular aberrant doctrine leads logically to another doctrine, to another doctrine, and another doctrine. And then in the end, you have, you have a totally different religion that's still calling itself evangelical. Okay. Um, some of the things that we're going to discuss are uh, may sound uh, rather abstract or philosophical. Um, they might not even sound uh, real important. Um, but believe me, the ones that are listed on this page, every one of them is very important, whether it's directly or indirectly. Uh, corrupts uh, or perverts the gospel message. Another thing to realize is that uh, most of these, I believe, uh, I should say probably more than half of these uh, dangers are coming from the quote-unquote top, from the evangelical thinkers. Okay? Uh, I'm a member of the Evangelical Theological Society and the Evangelical Philosophical Society. So, you know, I, I attend meetings with, with many of the leading Christian thinkers, 
you, we present papers and that type of thing. So sometimes, uh, uh, being a member, we're able to see things that uh, you're not going to see in the Christian bookstore for five or ten years. Okay. Other times, you'll get authors like Stanley Grenz, who's moving uh, evangelicalism in the wrong direction, I believe. Um, and you'll only see um, the worst of what he has to offer in scholarly papers um, because when he gets his books published by an evangelical press, he doesn't want to go against what they like, otherwise they're not going to publish his books. So, um, so very often, uh, you know, a guy won't mention some of his controversial views, um, and sometimes they wait till they get a big enough audience to where they're guaranteed 200,000 copies sold every time they write a book, and then sometimes even Christian publishers may look the other way. But uh, whatever the case, some of these are coming from the quote-unquote top, from the evangelical thinkers. Some of these dangers are coming from the, from, uh, uh, the Christian laity. The problem is there, like the health and wealth heresy uh, was started primarily by uh, uh, men who were not trained in the Bible, um, did not under, uh, study God's Word in context, okay, and began to promote heresies, but now they've been around so long they started their own colleges and confirmed their own doctorate degrees and that type of thing, so you know, eventually the health and wealth heresy is going to also be a top-down type thing as well. But uh, whatever the case, uh, let, let's take a look at a few of these. Um, number one, uh, religious pluralism and inclusivism, which is a denial of exclusivism. Okay, well, that's pretty self-explanatory. Let's move down to number two. No. See, this is... Uh, if you're taking notes, what you can write actually this is job security. If you're a theologian or a philosopher, to ensure job security, you have to make sure that you you make words that nobody knows what you're talking about except other guys in your field, and that justifies you having a job. And uh, um, but whatever the case, uh, I, you could add in another. The other word isn't a danger with the evangelical church. But see the wide spectrum on this debate, there is a view called universalism. I don't know of anybody who holds up an evangelical who holds to it, so it's not on here, but universalism is either the belief that everybody is already saved or everybody is going to eventually be saved. Okay, that's universalism. Okay? Um, pluralism which is entertained and is held by some quote-unquote evangelical scholars, um, Clark Pinnock, um, just to, to, well, actually, he's an inclusivist, but he's, I think he's moving in a pluralistic direction. But pluralism teaches that all religions basically teach the same thing and all religions lead to God. Now, having said that, uh, these guys will draw a distinction between what they consider a good religion and something that's just, you know, a guy might call it a good religion, but, it, but it's just really not. So, um, 
So they're not teaching universalism, universalism, everybody saved, but they're teaching all religions, all good religions lead to God, okay? Now, at this point, I don't know of any evangelical scholars who hold to that, but there are many inclusivists, and I'll explain what that is, and they seem to be moving in that pluralistic direction. How many people here were, uh, were here for my uh, postmodernism lecture? Got a, got a few. Shame on the rest of you, but there's always a remnant. Um, uh, IBD is not a big remnant, but, uh, uh, but whatever the case, uh, we talked about political correctness. We talked about uh, this idea of tolerance. Tolerance becomes the new sacred cow. And uh, I believe that that postmodern pressure is causing... Uh, a significant number of evangelical thinkers to now look at ways of toning down the gospel message so it doesn't sound so intolerant. Now, you and I know the gospel message is not intolerant. It is good news. And it is true. If it hurts people, if it doesn't... It did not build my self-esteem to be told that I was a sinner who was hell-bound because I deserved it. it not, that did not make me feel good, but, but I needed to hear that, and I needed to learn that. Because until I understood the bad news, I, I could care less about hearing about the good news. And um, um, so Christians, you know, true Christians are the nicest people you're ever going to meet, yet... Now we're supposed to be intolerant because we believe salvation comes only through belief in Jesus. Well, what inclusivism is, is kind of a halfway house between exclusivism and pluralism. Exclusivism. Exclusivism teaches what Christianity has taught, that there's only one way of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6. That is very exclusive. It excludes anybody who doesn't trust in Jesus for salvation. Okay? But if that's the truth, so be it. Okay? Well, inclusivism is a halfway house. Pluralism, all religions lead to God. Exclusivism, only, faith, only through faith in Jesus can we be saved. Inclusivism says, okay, the only way we can be saved is by Jesus, but you don't have to actively put your faith in him to be saved. You don't have to uh, you don't have to know that Jesus is saving you. You could be a good Buddhist or a good Hindu and then go to heaven and when you get there you're going to find out, oh wow it, gee, it was Jesus who saved me after all. Gee, I was fooled. I didn't know that. Okay? So uh, that's so inclusivism says we're saved by Jesus but you don't have to exercise faith in him. Now, now uh, Catholic scholars uh uh, who were instrumental in uh, Vatican II, um, uh, Carl Rader and uh, Hans Kohn, um, they would use phrases like anonymous Christians and uh, implicit faith. Okay? And what they meant by anonymous Christians uh, were people who don't consider themselves Christians, but they're Christians without knowing it. Because they love God with everything they got, and they love their neighbor as themselves, but they just don't trust in Jesus, and lo and behold, they're saved without knowing it. Um, uh, the implicit faith 
they don't explicitly have faith in Jesus, but they love God, so without knowing it, they implicitly have faith. That's the way that these word terms are being used. Um, now, most of the evangelicals that I read that hold to inclusivism would say something like this. Okay, um, there are some people who don't believe who are included in Christ's body, but it's only because they've never heard the gospel message. And they've been faithful to whatever light's been revealed to them, okay? And that's the way they word it. Um, I still have problems with that, though, okay? And uh, let me explain why. Let me just give you a few verses you might want to jot down. 1 John 2.23 First, I want to establish that those Buddhists and Hindus and, and Jews and Muslims who have heard the gospel message and have rejected it, right off the bat, that they're not included. Okay? And uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See, it's not an either-or situation. You can't get one and then not the other. You got to, you got to either have both or you have neither. Okay. So if you deny the Son, you deny the Father as well. This is pointed out real clearly in John chapter five, verse twenty-three. Jesus says that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. Okay? Matthew 10, 32 and 33, uh, there Jesus says that if you publicly acknowledge Jesus before men, Jesus is going to acknowledge you before his Father in heaven. But if you publicly deny Jesus before men, then Jesus is going to deny you before the Father. So that, that point is real clear. Uh, Luke Luke 10, 16 uh, says the same thing. Uh, so that point should be really, really clear that uh, if you deny the Son, you do not have the Father. There's no two ways about that. Now, uh, even the Pope, uh, it, Luke 10, 16, He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. He rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Okay? Even the Pope would agree on those points. Pope John Paul II. Um, so he would say that the... He, he talks a lot about how the Muslims and the Jews are so close to us because they believe in a personal God, but they're not saved because they knowingly, in order to be a Muslim and a Jew, you have to knowingly reject Christ. So even the Pope would agree with me on that. At the same time, the Pope talks about but in some cultures, some Buddhist and Hindu cultures, the gospel hasn't been widespread enough. And in those areas, as long as they love God with everything they got and love their neighbors themselves, that's enough to cover their sin and they're saved by Jesus whether they know it or not. And so he's got that type of mild inclusivism. Um, my understanding of the scriptures... Uh, is that even that is false. Uh, Acts chapter 4, and the, the Christian church has taught that it's false, false for the past 
2,000 years. Acts chapter 4 uh, and verse 12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay? I think the scriptures are clear that if someone really seeks God, the prophet Jeremiah tells us this, that if someone seeks God with all their heart, they will find him. Okay? But if you're seeking God, God isn't going to leave. You know, you know, our hands are often tied. Sometimes you're in a country and they outlaw the preaching of the gospel. Okay? Sometimes we live far away from Christians and we've never met a Christian, never seen a Bible. Our hands are often tied. God's hands are not tied. He's still the God who sits in throne. He's still the unlimited God. Okay? So if someone genuinely seeks God with all his heart, I believe God will get the gospel message too. But when God does, God leads him to a babe in a manger. Leads him to an empty tomb. Leads him to a wooden cross. Leads him like he led the wise men. He doesn't lead the Buddha. Doesn't lead him to Confucius or Muhammad. Okay? Um, I think Romans 1 and 2 are really clear. And Romans 1... We're without excuse because the invisible God has made himself known to us through his visible creation. In Romans 2, God has written his laws upon our hearts. He's given us a conscience so we know right from wrong. So we know that God exists and we know that we're, we stand guilty before him. I believe these are the lesser lights of creation and conscience to where God is showing us an almighty God exists and we have fallen short of pleasing Him. And if we accept the lesser lights, then we will see, hey, I can't save myself. I need to look to the Creator God for salvation. If we accept the lesser lights, I believe God will draw us unto Himself. Now the way He usually does it is by sending a missionary. Okay? He puts... He puts it in the heart of this some crazy guy to go to some faraway land, you know, and uh, I mean, you get some missionaries. I like the, I grew up in, in New Jersey, half Portuguese, half Italian, and there was like good food on both sides and stuff like that. <laughs> I've seen some missionary guys that look kind of real undernourished. And they're going out and doing all this Rambo kind of stuff that I would never do. And, uh, I mean, it, it just amazes me. But, but who puts that on their heart? Who puts a desire on a guy's heart? You know, a guy that wouldn't make the high school football team that he's going to go in some faraway land into the jungle and put his life on the line to preach the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Who put it on his heart to go exactly to that place? I think Paul answers that in Romans 10. You know, you, you can't hear without a preacher, and the preacher won't go unless he's sent. I think he's implying they're real strong that he's sent by God. Um, John, I think, alludes to this in John 3. John chapter 3. You know, we always think, you know, everybody reads 16 to 18, and then we stop reading. You know, about God sending His Son to save us and all. But in 19 to 21 says, And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. Well, that's Jesus. Jesus has come into the world. 
And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Now, the first time I read that, I thought, okay, he who does the truth, that's a believer. Then it says, he who does the truth comes to the light. You do a study on the word light throughout the Gospel of John, it's talking about Jesus, especially in this context. God sent his son into the world. So there are people who, are pra who practice the truth, who aren't believers, and they come to the light. They come to Jesus. And then when they come to Jesus, they find out God was the one at work all the time, the whole time, during this whole process. What that tells me is that John is talking about the same thing that Paul's talking about, Romans 1 and Romans 2. The lesser lights of creation and conscience. God is drawing all men unto himself through the Holy Spirit in our conscience. Uh, uh, John 16, 7 to 11. Holy Spirit's drawing all of us. Those, they're not perfect. We're not perfect, even after being saved. But these guys and gals aren't perfect, but they're practicing the amount of truth that God has revealed to them. And so God gives them more truth. And, and then they practice that amount of truth. And God gives them more truth. Well, God will lead them to the light. But the light is who? It's Jesus. It's not Muhammad. It's not the confusion of the world religions. Okay? So, um, so basically what I'm getting at is the only... I have one ounce of inclusivism in me. Okay? And what that is, is, because God is in control. God doesn't say, well, I can't get the gospel message out there to that guy. You know, if God's calling the giant of the Israelites, the largest Israelite there is, the mighty warrior Saul, to kill the Philistine giant, who happens to be probably two and a half feet taller than him, if Saul won't do it, God will say, fine, I'll just give me a shepherd boy and go kill the giant, and blast him in giant, okay? So there's not going to be a guy who goes to hell because Phil Fernandez slept in late yesterday. Okay? If Phil Fernandez won't do it, God will give somebody else the privilege and the reward and the honor involved. But God's hands are not tied. We've got to stop thinking like God's hands are tied. And uh, so if there's someone seeking the Lord, you know, in the book of Acts, uh, Paul and his colleagues wanted to preach in one area. The Holy Spirit said no. They want to preach somewhere else. The Spirit of Jesus said no. So then Paul has a vision. The guy in Macedonia praying. They go there and preach and all these people get saved. What does that tell me? It tells me that people weren't seeking God in those other areas. Okay? Um, but uh, whatever the case, uh, uh, I, I think it's real, real clear that... Uh, Anyone who seeks God will find them, but when they find them, they'll be looking face to face at Jesus, not some other religious leader. Uh, now, what was the, the, the illustration I was given? Went off on a tangent. <laughs> oh, that one ounce of inclusive. Yeah, I better say that now, otherwise Daryl will say, "Oh, you're, we won't need you to speak here anymore." But, uh, <laughs> And, and, and by the way, if, you, if you're inclusivistic, uh, I'd get out of Iwana. I'd get out of missionary work. I mean, 
that, that these people can be saved without Jesus, why ain't given the gospel message? But, but basically, the ounce of inclusivism, David had a little baby, seven days old. He loved his little baby. His little baby was weak. And his baby, and he was in sackcloth and ashes, and trying to get God forgiven for his sin with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. And the baby dies at age seven. He couldn't even, he couldn't even get the baby circumcised. Gotta wait till the eighth day. And he stops mourning. And he's got, he's looking at him and saying, you're a nut. You know, you, your baby was alive and you're mourning. And now your baby dies. And uh, all of a sudden you stop mourning. What's wrong with you? And he said, well, you know, I was, I was hoping that maybe God would relent and, and let my baby live. And see that I was sorry, but, but God chose not to do that. Um, he can't come to me, but I will go to him someday. This is the same David from the last verse of Psalm 23. He says, Surely goodness and love and kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knew where he was going. He's got a lot of brothers and sisters who don't like the scary believer, but David didn't have a problem with it. Um, David knew where he was going. Okay? And he said, Someday I'm gonna see I'm gonna see my boy. I'm gonna see him. So uh that little kid did not trust in the God of Israel and the God of Israel was going to send the Messiah and save him. So I believe if you die before the age of accountability, it's different with different people. Um, you know, some little babies might reach it at like, you know, age three or age four. You go to New Jersey, some of my buddies, I think it was about probably 835. <laughs> um, you know, at least when they moved out of her mom and dad's basement to the garage, you know, that was some kind of independence. But, um, but whatever the case, uh, maybe little babies, and then there, there may be, you know, maybe uh, people who are uh, mentally handicapped to the degree where they, they really don't know right from wrong, okay? I believe that they're covered by Christ's sacrifice, okay? I don't want to get, there, there's theological reasons for that, like the one I gave you, biblical reasons King David, but I think there's even some good philosophical reasons as well. But we can get into a lot of heavy stuff there. Um, but whatever the case, so I do think that there is an inclusive element, but it would apply just to those who cannot understand the gospel message and they haven't reached the age of accountability or due to some mental handicap, they just they don't understand right from wrong and, and that type of thing. There's a very controversial passage in Romans 7 where Paul says that he was once alive apart from the law, then the law came and he died. And um, a lot of scholars disagree with me. It's a big debate over it, but but I, I believe we each one of us has, a, has an Adam and Eve, a Garden of Eden experience where basically, even though we're born in sin and we inherit the sin nature of Adam, uh, I believe that God doesn't credit it to our accounts until that point uh, when we know right from wrong and then because we're sinful by nature we do the wrong thing. But whatever the case, that's a very controversial passage there, but all I'm getting at is um, the Christian church has thought for 2,000 years that a person has to trust in Jesus alone for salvation to be saved and now this is being questioned by quote-unquote evangelical scholars. Um, let me, uh, well, let's just, just go, the, the denial of divine eternity, uh, 
historically theologians have understood that God God does not exist in everlasting time he exists outside of time in eternity time has past, present and future but eternity just has the eternal now that's why Jesus could say before Abraham was born I am not I was I am okay the eternal present the eternal now a lot of theologians are putting God in time so they say that God existed throughout all time moment by moment but there's lots of problems with that Zeno's paradoxes in philosophy Zeno had shown an ancient Greek philosopher that to get from this table to that door okay if we assume that there's an infinite number of points where where Zeno was out to lunch there's not an infinite number of points between this table and there but if there were in order to get from point A to point B first I'd have to get halfway in order to get to the halfway point first I'd have to get halfway in order to get that halfway point I'd have to get halfway and movie you would never get started see it's impossible to traverse or cross an actual infinite number of things okay which means that it would be impossible to reach the moment of creation if God existed an infinite number of moments before creation no matter how many moments you traverse there would still be an infinite number more to traverse it'd be impossible to reach the present moment now because there'd have to be an infinite number of moments in the past that would have to be traversed to reach the present moment now okay um, but we have reached the present moment now which means there had to be a first moment in other words when God created the first changing being that's when time began God created time see when we say God exists in eternity you know God is his attributes that means God is eternal there's nothing heretical there but if God exists in everlasting time because God is his attributes we, 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 we could say God is time that's pretty weird <laughs> God isn't time and if he's not time if God exists in, in everlasting time and he's not time then that would make God subject to time and there's a whole slew of problems that come from that um, I, don't see, I don't think you could exist in time and be uh, omniscient, all knowing because beings that exist in time think moment by moment have new thoughts and all God knew everything there was to know in one eternal glance, one eternal thought. Okay, you take him out of eternity, put him in time, and I think I think that's uh, a little bit difficult to understand how that could be. So, uh, but whatever the case, what's happening? The point number two, denial of divine eternity, has led to number three, denying that God infallibly foreknows future free choices. How many people freely chose to, to be here today? Raise your hand. Okay, so some of you were, were dragged here. Okay. But uh, if these guys are right, and there are a lot of evangelical thinkers like Clark Pinnock, if they're right that hold to this view, then if you freely chose to come here today, um, God wasn't absolutely certain that you would be here. Now, he took an educated guess that you would be, <laughs> but you could have changed your mind at the last minute, okay? What's wrong with it? That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible 
didn't speculate, think, you know, with a high degree of probability, Judas is going to betray my son. God knew Judas was going to freely betray his son. God infallibly knew that through all eternity. Okay? Uh, what these guys are saying is they take an omniscience, God's all knowledge. They're saying God knows everything that is possible to know. But since a future event has yet to occur, it is not a thing. It isn't one of the things that there could be that God could know. And so they're saying God could only know the past and the present. Um, he can't know the future. So they're de redefining uh, traditional terms to try to do that. And, and so and in order to do that, what they're trying to do, they're trying to say, well, if God infallibly foreknew that you would freely reject his son and end up in hell and, and be tormented forever and ever, then God would be unjust to allow you to come into existence. So to get around that, to be more, quote-unquote, politically correct tolerant, um, therefore God couldn't have known that. So, uh, but that's not the case. The, the, the case of the matter is, the scriptures are real clear, that God infallibly foreknows future free choices, uh, but God has given us free will. If we refuse to say, your will be done, Lord, not mine, if we say, my will be done, not yours, um, God will give us that freedom. If we want to spend eternity apart from God, God will allow us to spend eternity apart from Him. And uh, as, as bad as hell is, I agree with C.S. Lewis, those in hell uh, would probably rather still not be in God's presence. Um, um, there's only one kind of person that's going to be in heaven, that's going to be people who are willing to uh, bow before the throne of the Almighty God. So uh, denying it, God probably foreknows future free choices. This is really, and it's becoming more and more popular. What this is leading to is panentheism, not pantheism. Pantheism is God is the universe. Panentheism, the universe is God's body. Uh, evangelical scholars are moving, some of them are moving in that direction uh, where they believe that God, in order for God to relate to us, he's got to be a changing God, they say. So now they're starting to deny that this, uh, what the scriptures clearly teach, that God is unchanging. And so all of a sudden, God is this chameleon uh, who, who can change. And, uh, and so uh, basically, uh, um, starting to call these evangelicals neo-evangelicals or neo-theists. Uh, uh, what they're basically saying is that a new, a new religion is being formed within evangelical circles and there's going to be some confusion in the near, in fact there's confusion right now where exactly we draw the line. Okay? Um, uh, we now have, uh, and, and by the way, uh, denying that God infallibly foreknows future free choices, read Psalm 139, read the whole book of Isaiah. Um, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear. Uh, um, the Lord, you know, He knew I was going to choose to be here. Um, he knew, uh, I believe God foreknew that Phil Fernandez would freely choose to accept His Son given certain circumstances. And so I believe that God foreordained or predestined that those circumstances would come about which would persuade me to freely accept His Son. I'm still free. Uh, God's still in control, still sovereign. I mean, 
if God didn't uproot me out of New Jersey and, and via the United States Marine Corps eventually bring me up to Washington State, I'm not sure I would have ever gotten saved. And it, I don't have time now, but if you ever heard how how I how and why I went in the United States Marine Corps, because um, I didn't want to go into the Marine Corps, but it was just it was just uh, uh, a boxer at the gym I was boxing at convinced me to go into Marine Corps in a buddy system with him. And I had just gotten knocked out the first time. I was embarrassed, and everywhere I went, everybody used to call me Ferno. They'd say, hey, Ferno, I heard you got knocked out the other night. And it's like, oh, this is great. I want to hear this over and over again in the public. And, and uh, so I wanted out of Jersey, but I couldn't afford it. And here my buddy says he's going to go in the Marine Corps, and I figured I'll go with him on a buddy system. In fact, it was, it was yesterday, 20 years to the day, when I, I took the oath, stood there and took the oath. And guess what? I was with four strangers. My buddy never showed up. Flying <laughs> in an airplane. Flying in an airplane down towards Paris Island, South Carolina. I'm thinking, man, I ain't into the Marine Corps thing. I was just doing it because he was doing it. And uh, so, uh, so it was a little bit of a culture shock. And eventually, they brought me up to. Uh, hyperactive guy from New Jersey up to Bangor and told me to stand still and guard nukes all day and, and uh, next thing I know I was a Christian but uh, <laughs> you know so God knew what it would took so he foreordained certain things in my life that were beyond my control to put me in a situation that would persuade me to freely accept his son so I'm free God's in control but God infallibly foreknows our future free choices on the changing God, scriptures are clear. Hebrews 1, verses 10 to 12, that God does not change. Hebrews 13, 8 tells us uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And obviously it's talking about His divine nature. Um, okay, annihilation of the wicked. This is really sad, but we now have Clark Pinnock and his buddies. And, uh, in fact, you know, this is even the Baptist General Conference, I think, is dynamite. But uh, they, at their seminary is, is starting to go sour. And was it in Minneapolis or something <coughs> over there? Uh, what's the name of the seminary? I can't remember the name. But Gregory Boyd teaches there, and uh, and I believe he's uh, he's jumped on the Clark Pinnock bandwagon and also Annihilation of the Wicked, the Jehovah's Witness view that uh, uh, the unsaved will not be tormented forever and ever, uh, but instead. Um, God will annihilate them. Okay, they'll cease to exist. Um, and so, uh, see, when I'm talking about dangers within the evangelical church, I'm not talking about, you know, some liberal Methodist denomination or Episcopalian denomination that, you know, for the past 30 years has been ordaining homosexuals and, and denied the deity of Christ, you know, before I was born. I'm talking the, the cream of the crop evangelical associations of churches. Some of their seminaries is where this stuff is going on. So, so don't misunderstand me. Don't don't think that boy he's saying the Baptist General Conference is, is bad. No, I'm saying they're dynamite. That's why I'm concerned. An evangelical free church, I think they're dynamite, and that's why I'm concerned that they got Mary. Well, the Mary Harris problem apparently is taken care of, but. Uh, at one time, Mary Harris um, was uh, denying Christ's bodily resurrection, and they kept him on staff. And now he's, he, he hasn't admitted 
he recanted without admitting that he ever changed his view. But it's, it's a whole other story. But, <laughs> but annihilation of the wicked, Revelation 14, 9 to 11, says those who accept the mark of the beast will be cast into the lake of fire. The smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever, and day and night they will not have rest. Now, that's not a real good way to describe annihilation or extinction. Okay, day and night, no rest. Um, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Lucifer are all, all get thrown into the lake of fire where they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. I think it's kind of unfair to Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. If they get thrown in the lake of fire, get tormented day and night forever and ever, and everybody else in the great white throne judgment that gets thrown into the lake of fire just gets annihilated. So uh, I think those guys would have... Uh, you know, some kind of a, a, a case for unfair treatment. So, uh, Mark 9, Mark 9, Jesus is looking at this garbage dump called Guyana, where they, they kept the fires going 24 hours a day, and he used it as an illustration of hell. And he said, the, 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 he talking about hell, he said that the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, that's poetic language for saying... It hurts forever and ever and ever. That's that's the way you describe eternal conscious torment. Okay. Now there is a debate among good, solid, conservative evangelical scholars as to whether or not our eternal conscious torment is is God tormenting us, or is it the torment of that we go through, going through. You know, Augustine said. Um, um, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Well, those who spend eternity in hell have decided not to find their rest in God. So, uh, is that torment due to being separated from God and it just automatically, the one thing that, that could give us eternal joy when we've rejected and now we have that torment? Or is it God actually tormenting us? And I... I I tend to favor the first one, that it just, it's just separation from God in itself. I mean, ultimately, we all need God. That is the number one need we have, and to, to never have the chance of getting that one need met um, is a torment that, uh, that all the uh, you know, scriptures uh, tries to vividly point out. But whatever the case, annihilation of the wicked is being taught by... Uh, uh, in fact, Clark Pinnock is even recommending that we come up with a Protestant view of purgatory. And uh, denial of Christ's bodily resurrection. Uh, Mary Harris used to deny that Christ bodily rose from the dead in print and all. Norman, he was teacher of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Norman Geisler butt heads with him. And for a while, I would go to the meetings in the Evangelical Theological Society. And when Geisler wouldn't show up, the leaders of the Evangelical Society would give Geisler's guys who were selling his cassettes a hard time, yet they would surround Mary Harris wherever he walks. He couldn't even talk to Mary Harris without coming to the bigwigs. Uh, a few years later, Norman Geisler was elected by a lot of young evangelical theologians and philosophers, the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. So you tell me who won that debate. And, uh, but whatever the case, Mary Harris has since changed his view but he has a habit of changing his view and not, and not admitting that he held the heretical view in the first place. Um, um, see, see, 
To get a, a master's degree, you've got to write a thesis to prove you've mastered your subject. To get a PhD degree, you've got to write a dissertation where you're supposed to boldly take your, your subject, your field of expertise, where it's never been before. Now, for conservative evangelicals, what that means is saying the same old gospel message in a new way. Okay? But that's not good enough for a lot of quote-unquote evangelical scholars. Some of them really want to say something new. And when you deal with the faith once for all delivered to the saints, if it's new, it stinks. Okay? So, uh, um, I don't know any other more diplomatic way of saying it. Um, but denying Christ's bodily resurrection, Jesus said, destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. John said, well, he was talking about the temple of his body. So, I don't know if Joe's witnesses or Mary Harris were thinking about Jesus said he was going to raise, destroy his body, I'll raise this body up in three days. And Luke 24, the apostles thought they were seeing a spirit. Jesus said, I have a body of flesh and bones. Touch the wounds of my hands and my feet, the wound of my side. Here, give me a piece of fish. I'll eat it in your midst. Okay? And uh, so it was real clear that he bodily rose, bodily rose from the dead. Um, denial of inerrancy um, I mean, evangelical scholars usually do not deny important doctrines of the Christian faith they don't deny them um, and then, by the way don't get me wrong 95% of evangelical scholars are right on all these points but it's the 5% that are getting all the media attention and selling the books and everybody's thinking they're real profound. But when evangelical scholars go bad, they don't deny important doctrines uh, because they get they lose their teaching position right away. So what they do at first is they redefine them. So inerrancy means the Bible is totally true. It is it is completely without error. Okay? Um we have a lot of evangelicals that say they hold to inerrancy, but what they mean is the Bible's without error when it speaks about uh, spiritual or moral issues. But it can make errors in areas of history or um, science and things of that sort. Uh, so that's another thing to watch out. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, you know, every word of God is flawless. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his word lest you be proved a liar. Uh, I mean, the scriptures are real clear. Um, you know, if God said it, it's true, period. Okay, Paul said, let God be true and every man a liar. Um, now, the ones we've covered so far are mainly coming from the top. Okay? Uh, the health and wealth heresy, this, this came mainly from uh, grassroots.